It was March 2006, March 11th, 2006, and I had no idea what storm was about to hit me. I was serving on a ship. You can see the ship on the picture here. I was serving two years as a missionary with the organization Operation Mobilization. And the mission of the ship was to bring knowledge, help, and hope to the people of the world. And we did that by taking this ship and going from port to port in different countries. And in the port, people had the opportunity to come onto the ship and to come to conferences. There was a bookshop on board where they could buy Christian literature and other books. But we also sent teams out into the country. We worked with local churches there. And we would visit hospitals and prisons and schools, orphanages. And on this particular day, March 11th, 2006, we were in the port of Kingston, Jamaica. And we had had to leave the berth at, uh, in port and go out to anchor because another commercial ship had come in that had to unload goods. And so they had priority. So we were out in the bay at anchor, but we still had commitments on shore. And so we set up a lifeboat shuttle. Some of you might be familiar with that from cruise ships. When the cruise ships can't go into port, they set up lifeboat shuttles and they take the little lifeboats, they put people in and they take them to the harbor and then back to the ship. And so as the supervisor of the deck department, I got to play the captain of that little lifeboat. <laughs> On this particular day, things had started out very calm. We would get up at six o'clock in the morning, take the first team, take it ashore, do that a couple of times, and then we would wait for the teams to return. That handsome young guy on the right is uh, me. And then in the afternoon, we would take the teams back to the ship. And on this particular day, the weather forecast had called for a storm or for the weather to pick up. And so we were watching the weather, but we weren't too nervous because we were gonna be back in the safety of the ship on time. And so we weren't worried until the last team was delayed and delayed, and delayed. And by the time the team arrived in the port, we had good reason to be worried because the storm was approaching, it was clear that we were not going to get back to the ship in time. Now, that sounds a little dramatic. I need to put it into perspective. Uh, it wasn't a full-blown hurricane. It wasn't a huge storm, uh, but it also wasn't a huge boat. And so by the time we were heading back to the ship, the waves were about as high as a lifeboat. And then we also realized that our engine wasn't working at 100%, as it so often is when storms hit us in life. We realized that we weren't quite doing as well as we might have realized. We just didn't notice it when things were going smoothly. And so for the next hour, we were fighting the wind and the waves, trying desperately to get back to the ship, which was upwind from where we were. And it wasn't, um, it, it happened more than once that I was wondering, are we actually going to make it back to the safety of the ship. And I'm the captain of this lifeboat and I am out of control. I don't, I can't, there's nothing that I can do to get back there. What a relief it was when I saw the real captain of the real ship show up on the deck and he saw the situation. By now, almost the whole ship's company was on the side of the ship and could see the situation. And so they started up the main engines, they swung the ship around to kind of shield us from the wind, they threw some ropes out to pull us in, and they pulled us into safety. So why do I tell you that story to start this morning? Well, let me ask you this question. Have you ever experienced a storm in your life? Have you ever experienced a struggle? Have you ever been in a struggle where you might have felt hopeless, 
or helpless or alone, maybe invisible. I can tell you that situation would have been very different for me if we had been out in the middle of the ocean with no one else around. What made a difference for me that day was knowing that the captain of the ship could see me and the captain of the ship was able and willing to do something to help you, help me. Now it doesn't take a prophet to guess or to know that everyone in this room can relate to that to some degree. Here's one thing that I know about you and that is that you are currently in a struggle or you've just come out of a struggle or like it or not, you're about to head into a struggle because the reality is struggles are a part of life. Jesus said that already, in this world you will have trouble. But then he said, take heart for I have overcome the world. And that pretty much brings us to the main point of our message. We're continuing in the series, The Names of God, and the name of God we're gonna be looking at today is Elroy. The story is found in Genesis 16, and it's about the God who sees. And so the message uh, this morning, the key point of the message is that God sees you in your story. The God that we learned about last week, the God most high, the creator of the universe, is exactly that, but he also sees you and he sees me in our story. He doesn't just see us from high and lift it up, but he actually sees us personally and he sees us in whatever we are going through in our story and in our struggle. One of the main reasons why that's so significant is because we have been created in the image of God. We have been created as relational beings and part of relationship is to see and to be seen, to know and to be known. And so that's why each one of us craves to be seen in life. Parents, you know that kids, as soon as they are old enough to speak, they say, mommy, look at me. Daddy, did you see that? We want to be seen, we want to be known. And that's why this message this morning is so relevant to all of us, because it's a reminder that God sees you in your story. Now to some of you, especially if you've been a Christian for a while, that might sound very simple and so obvious. And I have to admit, as I was preparing the message, I was reminded of how easy it is to lose sight of that so simple and yet so profound fact that God, the creator of the universe, actually sees us in our story. And so that's what we're gonna be looking at this morning. God sees you in your story. We're gonna be looking at Genesis 16. So Genesis is the first book in the Bible, so at this point we're 16 chapters into the Bible. The first 15 chapters deal with creation, with fall, there's a story of Noah and the flood in there, there's the Tower of Babel, and then in chapter 12, we're introduced to Abraham and Sarah. And God calls Abraham to leave his home, to leave his country, and to go to a land that God is gonna show him. And he promises to bless him, and he promises to give him land, and to give him a family, in fact, a huge family, a nation, as an inheritance. And so God is starting a story with Abraham, and at the center of that story is a child. At the center of that story is a son that God promises Abraham will have. The only problem is Abraham doesn't have a son. And that's where we get to chapter 16. We're going to be looking at this in two sections. The first six verses uh, talk about Abraham and Sarah and a struggle that they had. And then the second part of the chapter 
which we're going to focus most of our time on, uh, is about Hagar, Sarah's maidservant, and her struggle. And we see that through her struggle, she has an encounter with God, and that she names God El Roy, the God who sees. Because Hagar experiences that God sees her and meets her in a very personal way in her story. So let's read the first few verses in chapter 16 of Genesis. Now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And I'll just say to start with, in your translation or in the Bible, it says Sarai and Abram. Those were the names that they had before God changed their names. In the next chapter, we'll see that they changed names. For simplicity's sake, we're just going to call them Sarah and Abraham because that's how they're most commonly known. The name change doesn't have a significant impact on our message today. Uh, that's a separate story. So Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. So Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan. Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarah said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave you my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarah dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. So I mentioned at the outset that struggles are part of life, and right in the very first part of the first verse here, we are introduced to our first struggle. I'd mentioned that God had promised Abraham a son, and in that culture and in that day, having children was a huge deal because children were your inheritance. Children were your family. It was your life insurance. It was your old age pension. It was uh, your reputation. And Sarah and Abraham have no children. And it says right at the start, now Sarah, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. So Sarah and Abraham have a struggle of their own. And we learn later on in the New Testament that this is actually a picture of one of the struggles that we have in the Christian faith, and that is works versus faith. How much do I trust that God is going to do what he said, and how much do I have to do myself? And Sarah here, although she knows that there was a promise, she was actually never personally in, um, included in that promise. God had promised Abraham a son, but he hadn't actually mentioned that Sarah would be a part of it. Now, it would be reasonable to, ex to expect that because she was his wife, and yet she hadn't been mentioned. And it was part of the culture in those days that a woman who wasn't having children, or even if she was having children, to give one of her servants as a concubine, as a second wife to her husband. Now, that seems strange to us these days. It's mentioned throughout the Bible. It comes up uh, fairly frequently. And so it would have been something culturally acceptable, culturally understood, and so the idea that she would give her servant to Abraham as a wife to have a child on her behalf didn't seem outrageous. And maybe, just maybe, God was expecting her to do her part and to help out with the situation so that his promise could be fulfilled. 
Then we read in verse two, Abraham listened to the voice of Sarah. Abraham had the promise as well, and maybe he thought similarly that, well, God promised me a son, but he never actually said how that's going to work out. And the unfortunate thing is we know Abraham as a man who listened to the voice of God. He listened to the voice of God when God called him to leave his home country. He listened to the voice of God a little later on when God said, go and sacrifice your son Isaac. Uh, Over and over we find that Abraham was a man who listened to the voice of God, but here we see that he is listening to the voice of Sarah. Now, we're not gonna spend a whole bunch of time, but that reminds us of something we would have read just a few chapters ago in chapter three in the fall. we hear about Eve taking the fruit, giving it to Adam and then Adam taking the fruit as well. And God's response to Adam is, because you listened to the voice of your wife. And we also see that Eve took the fruit and gave it to Adam. And here we read that Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar and gave her to Abraham. So there's a parallel here that even though it doesn't say it explicitly, gives us a sense that Sarah and Abraham here were doing something that was not God's original plan. It wasn't his purpose for his promise that they would act this way. And so they're dealing with that struggle in human terms and they're trying to find a way to do that. I mentioned before that giving your servant as a wife was very common in those days. It's mentioned multiple times in the Bible, but it's very important to remember that even though it's mentioned in the Bible, not once is it condoned or called good in the Bible, and almost exclusively when it does happen, it brings with it uh, strife, family conflict, pain, and so it is here as well. Abraham listened to the voice of Sarah later on when she says, you brought this trouble onto me, Um, He just uh, reacts passively and says, you do what you think is right. And again, it reminds us of the situation of Adam being passive at the fall. And so there's a sense that there is a wrong happening here, that there is something that is not in God's will that's happening here. And it causes a struggle for Abram and Sarah, but it also causes a struggle for Hagar. And so we're introduced to Hagar and we're gonna spend the rest of our time looking at Hagar's struggle There's so much more we could say about Abraham and Sarah and that whole situation. We'll have to keep that for another time. Hagar is now in a difficult situation because of the struggle that Sarah and Abraham had. And we read at the end of verse six, then Sarah dealt harshly with her and she fled from her. So as a result of what happened to her, a situation she was thrown into, no choice of her own, no say of her own, Hagar finds herself in a life and death struggle and she decides, I need to flee. This is nothing that, I, I cannot take this anymore. I need to get out of here. And in that struggle, we're going to see that she learns that God sees her in her story. God sees her in her struggle. Let's read uh, the rest of the chapter and then we'll pull out some of the key points there. So in verse seven, we see the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarah. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. 
He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Barad. And Hagar bore Abraham a son, and Abraham called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 68 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. So Hagar flees from Sarah and Abraham. She finds herself in the wilderness, and this is a pregnant woman, a foreigner, trying to head back to Egypt, to her home. That's what it looks, looks like uh, where she was found uh, in the desert. And an angel of the Lord appears to her. Now, I think Gary mentioned this is one of his messages. The angel of the Lord appears several times in the Old Testament. And almost always it seems like it is actually God himself. It is the Lord himself. Maybe even Jesus in a pre-incarnate form. Jesus uh, appearing in person. And we see that here because the angel of the Lord said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring. That is something that God, the Lord himself, said to Abraham, and so it sounds very much like something that God would say. And at the end, Sarah, um, Hagar says, truly I have seen him who looks after me. She actually says that she has heard and she has seen God himself. And so when we read about the angel of the Lord, this is actually the Lord himself appearing to Hagar. Notice a few things from this story that we see in Hagar's story that gives her the confidence and the assurance that God sees her in her story. The first thing is that God takes the initiative. It says the angel of the Lord found Hagar in the desert. Now you can find something by accident or you can find something intentionally. And we see here that it wasn't just by accident that God ran into her, but he actually went after her to look for her. God didn't hear Hagar's prayer. He heard her pain because God says, you should call your son Ishmael because the Lord has heard your affliction. God had heard Hagar's affliction and that's why he went after her. And the encouraging thing for us is that Hagar didn't pray. Hagar didn't repent. Hagar didn't go searching for God. God came searching for her. Maybe that's your story. Maybe you were in a struggle, you were in a difficult situation and God found you in that struggle before you even getting active. Maybe that's your story right now. One of the reasons you're coming to church is because you're trying to find out what is it that I need to do to come to God? What is it I need to do to approach God? And maybe what you need to hear this morning is that God is the one who takes the initiative. God is the one who takes the first step. Romans 5 verse 8 says, that while we were still sinners, God sent his son. God didn't wait for us to get it right so that he could do something to fix that relationship. God initiated that first step. And maybe all you need to hear this morning in whatever situation you're in is that you don't actually have to get your life together. You don't have to fix everything before you can come to God because God has initiated that first step already. Another thing we see here 
that is an encouragement to Hagar and can be an encouragement to us is that God calls her by name. I don't know if you've caught it, but when Sarah and Abraham were talking about Hagar, they were talking about your servant and my servant. Here's my servant, you take her. And Abraham says, you gave me your servant. But when God approaches Hagar in the desert, he calls her by name and he says, Hagar. And we see that God didn't see what she was, he saw who she was. I don't know if you think of that on a daily basis. As I was preparing this message, I realized how often I think of God as God up there and God out there. And I forget that God knows me and God calls me by name. We read in the New Testament that God numbers the hairs on our head. God sees us as more valuable, more precious than the birds in the sky. We have been called children of God. Those who believed in him, who accepted him, he gave the right to be children of God. Now here's a question for you. How many parents don't know the name of their kids? So if we're children of God, do we recognize that God knows us by name? God calls Hagar by name, and it is in contrast to what Abraham and Sarah did. God doesn't just find her, he doesn't just call her by name, but then he asks her questions. The first thing he says after he says, Hagar, servant of Sarai, he asks the question, where have you come from and where are you going? Where have you come from and where are you going? And this shouldn't surprise us because there is a pattern in the Bible that when God appears to people, God often asks questions. He asked Adam and Eve in the garden after they had sinned, he said, Adam, where are you? He asks um, Elijah when he's hiding in the cave, he says, where have you come from? God asks questions. Cain, when he's thinking about the anger to his uh, brother Abel, God says, why are you angry? He asks Jonah when he's fleeing, do you have a right to be angry? And he doesn't ask the question because he needs information. He asks the question to get the person to think. And he doesn't ask so that he can know, he asks so we can know. And so when we see this question, we would do well not to just read over it, but to actually think about the question, where have we come from and where are we going? Or maybe we need to think a question further Hagar's response is, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarah. I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarah. She doesn't even answer both questions. She answers both questions with the same answer, I'm fleeing. Where have I come from? I'm fleeing. Where am I going to? I'm fleeing. And I think God asked her this question because he wants her to go in a new direction. Maybe you need to ask that question this morning. What am I fleeing from? Is there something that I'm fleeing from? Am I actually headed somewhere in life? Or am I heading away from something in life? The encouraging thing is that God doesn't ask this question because he's pointing a finger or because he wants to um, guilt Hagar into this. He asks this question out of grace. And we see that because he responds so differently in this story than we so often respond. In fact, he responds differently than Hagar responds. Hagar had looked on Sarai with contempt. We see that in verse four. 
When she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And so Hagar looks at Sarah with contempt, but God looks on Hagar with compassion. He finds her in her struggle. He calls her by name. He asks her a question to consider where she's actually going. And then he shows her grace. And his response to tell her to give her son that is going to be born the name Ishmael. Ishmael means God hears. And so God is giving Hagar a daily reminder that every single day when she wakes up and she sees her son, she's going to be reminded that God hears. Now she calls him God sees, and we have an interesting dynamic here that God tells Hagar to call her son Ishmael, which means God hears. And Hagar then calls God, I have seen the God who sees. And now this is not necessarily a contradiction, but I think it's just a beautiful richness of the character of God, that God is described throughout the Bible as a God who hears and a God who sees. And what that means is he is a God who cares. Exodus 2.25 talks about the Israelites who are at that time in Egypt and their cry goes out to God and it says the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Some translations say it more literally. It says, God heard their cry, God saw their affliction and God knew. And so Hagar here experiences exactly that, that God is a God who sees and God is a God who hears. What a contrast that is, again, to Gary's message two weeks ago about the idols, the idols who are crafted by men who have ears but cannot hear and who have eyes but cannot see. The God most high, the creator of the universe, is also a God who sees and a God who hears in a very personal way. So the simple message, the simple lesson that Hagar learns in this story is that God is a God who sees her in her story. God sees you in your story. Maybe that's the only thing that you need to take away. Whatever struggle you're going through, whatever struggle you might be encountering, that one thought that God sees you in your story can make the difference. I told you the story at the start when I was the captain of my little lifeboat and I was doing fine until I wasn't doing fine. And the one thing that made a difference for me was to know that there is another captain who sees me and who is able to make a difference when I can't. Exodus 3 talks again about the Lord and he says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people and I have heard their cry. Second Chronicles 16.9 talks about the eyes of the Lord ranging throughout the earth to see whose heart is fully committed to him. Jesus shares about God. He talks in the Sermon on the Mount about the God who sees what is done in secret. And he's not talking about the secret sins so that God can punish us. He's talking about uh, offering tithes. He's talking about prayer. And he says, do those things in secret because God sees what is done in secret and he will reward you. God sees you in your story. Some of you might have missed that I jumped over one of the things that God said to Hagar. 
He said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? And she says, I'm fleeing from my mistress Sarai. And then the next sentence, he says, return and submit to your mistress. Now we could just jump over that because that kind of makes us feel a little awkward and uncomfortable. Why would God say such an insensitive thing that she should go and submit to the one who had been mistreating her so much? And this is the value of stories over just simple statements and phrases because if you've been around church, if you've been a Christian for a while, we have heard similar things like this in different contexts and it's so easy for us to just gloss over it and think, yep, that's, that's good and that's fine. But when we see it in a story like this and we uh, sense the uh, emotions involved and we've seen the story of Hagar, we've seen how she's been mistreated so much that she, that she fled into the desert and then God comes and says, go and return and submit. Go back and submit. We can sense the, the injustice and it just feels like why would God ask her to do something like that? I'll give it a moment to settle because just saying it out loud feels uncomfortable. How do I justify that God, the God of love would say go back into that difficult situation, to that abusive situation and submit? One of the things that we need to remember, God sees us in our story, but just like I was just the captain of that little lifeboat, and there is actually a different captain and a bigger ship, we need to recognize that while God sees us in our story, he invites us into his story. And we are not the center of the universe. We're not the center of the story. And so this is a story about Hagar, but the world does not revolve around Hagar. God is writing his story and he is inviting her back into his story. And I think the reason that she was able to do that, because we don't read any complaints, we don't read any um, contradiction or argument, we just read that she went and she submitted. She had the baby for Abraham, she did what God asked her, and I think the reason she was able to do that was because she had experienced that God saw her in her story, he knew her, and so she was willing to do whatever he asked because he was with her. I'm going to read a couple of verses that might be familiar for most of us, and I'd like us to compare them to how they sound to this statement of go back and submit. Ephesians 5.21 says, submit to one another out of reference for Christ. Go back and submit. This isn't something outrageous God is asking her to do out of context. It's actually in line with his character and with God's kingdom. Submit to one another fit so with go back and submit. Luke 14, 33, Jesus says, if you don't give up everything you have, you cannot be my disciples. I'm sure Hagar had ideas of what her life maybe should or could look like away from Abraham and Sarah. God asked her to give that up, to go back and to submit. John 15, 13, greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friend. God was asking her to give up her life in some way and to go back and submit. And then Philippians 2, 5 and 7, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who took on the very nature of a servant. Hagar, servant of Sarai, go back and submit. Be a servant. God is not asking us for anything different. God sees us in our story, but he wants to invite us into his story because his story is so much bigger than each one of our stories. And so while 
we will need to recognize we are not the center of the story. In each one of our stories, God sees us in our story. We're going to sing a song called The Goodness of God. The music team is going to come up. And as we sing this, I'd like you to keep in mind these two aspects. We sing of the goodness of God and how good God was to us. And that's true and that's real and that should be an encouragement to us. But don't miss this part in the middle where it says, with my life laid down, I'm surrendered now. I give you everything. The goodness of God in our lives is not to make us the center of the story. The goodness of God is to show us that the God who is at the center of the story sees each one of us in our story. So it's uh, been a really good morning for me to think of how God sees me, he hears me, and he cares for me. Um, and like Andrea said right at the get-go, we are else in a struggle or we're about to go into a struggle, and that's just the way life is. But God cares for us so much. And uh, I encourage you to go home and read Psalm 139. It's a passage, we know David had a lot of struggles in his life, and it speaks of how God knows everything about him, and at the end, he really wants to know the way that is the way of everlasting. And so God cares for us, and he wants to write a story of, with our lives into his greater story, which is so amazing. So this morning we are blessed to have a potluck and I wanna say a thank you to all the potluck team that puts all those things together. I think we hold the Guinea's world record for pot, or what do you call them, crock pots? Not crack pots, crock pots. <laughs> I, think, I think we were at 47 the last time. So. That's a big surge on our electricity bill. Anyways, having said that, I just really want each one of you to know, if you are totally new here, that God sees you, he cares for you, and he knows exactly where you're at. But he's not against you, he's for you. So if you have any questions, please feel free to ask somebody that you trust. And then for the potluck, for those of you who are going to the life class, please go out there right away. As soon as the food line is ready, go get your food and head upstairs. And uh, again, thank you for coming today. May God really bless you throughout this week, whether you're going through a good time or through a struggle. So let's pray and give thanks for the meal. Father, this morning we thank you again that you are the all-knowing, all-wise, eternal God, who sees everything, but you see us through the eyes of love and compassion. And we're so privileged to hear about you. So many in the world don't know you, or they think of you as some big bad person that is powerful and against us. And you are all for us. And may the world hear and know that God loves us, every one of us, no matter how deep our situation is. So we give you thanks for the meal that's been prepared. Thank you for the, all the people who have brought food. Uh, we thank you for the privilege to be in a land where we have so much. Father, we just pray that our fellowship around the meal would be meaningful, that we would be willing to have the courage to meet someone new and share the story that you're writing in our life, our spiritual journey, and not just, uh, just talk about the weather and talk about sports. 
but talk about the things that really will enrich us. Thank you again for your presence here this morning in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Have a great time fellowshipping around the table.